from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was Thirteen. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all Hear the word of God from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly, I tell you, Many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. 
But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Waypoint Church. My name is Eric Weiner. I'm an associate pastor here at Waypoint, and so good to be preaching God's word with you this morning. I want to begin with a, with a story that I heard about an English professor who taught every year on a famous poem. It was his favorite subject to teach, and, and one year the professor was so excited that he actually invited the poet to speak to his class. Shot in the dark, didn't know him, just to see. And to his surprise, the poet agreed. So when the time in the semester rolled around to discuss the poem, the professor gave a standard lecture before inviting the poet to elaborate. But the professor was surprised again For the poet informed the class that the professor had actually misunderstood the poem altogether. Here's what the story means to ask. Where is truth to be found? From the poet or from the professor? From the author or from the hearer? Isn't the best way to begin a a sermon on parables to start with a parable? Today we're in Matthew 13, which scholars refer to as the third discourse in Matthew's gospel. In this chapter, Jesus tells a handful of stories about the kingdom of God. And by now I hope you're starting to see just how important this message of the kingdom is to Jesus' ministry. And are parables a fascinating way for Jesus to teach? I mean, we all like stories with a clear lesson. I mean, you see, think of the, the popular TV shows Full House or, or Family Matters. But while these parables are intended to highlight a core spiritual truth, actually arriving at the level of understanding Jesus intended can sometimes feel somewhat cryptic. I mean, even scholars have changed their mind over the years about the best approach to interpretation of of these parables. Are, Are these just earthly stories with a spiritual lesson? Are they allegories? How much weight do we give to the various details? How how much do we spiritualize what's going on here? Is there one distinct meaning, or are there many? In our case, we have the benefit of leaning into Jesus' interpretation. That's that's helpful. But I find theologian William Barclay also to be helpful when he says, Jesus' parables were designed to make one stabbing truth flash out at a person the moment they heard it. The story I told about the professor and the the poet is intended to do that. It's meant to grab your attention and then invite you to locate and ponder the central truth, the central question. It's to stimulate the hearer to think and then profit from receiving the things of God. That's what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 13. The truth flashes at you. It causes you to blink and squint before you begin to decipher what it is you just saw what it is you just heard, what you're taking in. Jesus is giving us a series of stories and inviting us to seek their understanding. But even in knowing that, it still begs the question of why. Why parables? Why why this way? Significant matters call for simplicity and clarity. Jesus, you said the kingdom of God is coming near. The kind of response that should elicit is not, well, 
What do you mean? Don't we even still ask that today? Kingdom of God, what do you, what do you mean? What does that mean? So the question we start with today is the same question we find in the mouths of the disciples in verse 10. And this is ultimately a question about function rather than content. We're asking what Jesus' parables are intended to do before we ask, what what does it mean? Okay, So, so in other words, Jesus, why are you talking to these people in parables? Why make the message of the kingdom so secretive? That's not, that's not strategic. That's not evangelistically prudent. I wouldn't do it that way. Now go with me here. I don't think Jesus intended for these parables to be immediately understood. Now that, that sounds bad, but, but what I mean is, I think Jesus is, what Jesus is doing with these stories is he's inviting people in but he knows that many won't enter. Are you with me? Are you following me? In one sense, these parables are like an appetizer before the meal. They they whet your appetite. They make you want more. But in another sense, they're indicative of whether or not you're hungry at all. What's happening here is Jewish crowds are forming because they suspect that God is doing something substantial in their day and they, they want to know what he's up to. They've been waiting for centuries, and if Jesus is their God, then maybe this will be their call to arms kind of moment. Maybe, maybe a revolution is on the horizon. Something's about to change. They may not know exactly how God's going to do it, but what they do know is that it will be swift and immediate. So they come to, they come to hear him. They're flocking. But then Jesus tells them this story about the kingdom of God being like a farmer scattering seed in a field. And the fact that Jesus ends by saying, whoever has ears, let them hear, should be a clear indicator that Jesus recognized that this would be hard for them to hear. Their response is probably something to the effect of, I'm sorry, could, could you say that again? You see, the kingdom of God being like a farmer scattering seed isn't exactly what they expected because it supposes patience rather than immediacy, delay rather than activity. Seed requires time to grow. There's nothing, there's nothing swift about it. And even Jesus' response to the disciples' confusion isn't all that reassuring. In verse 12, he says, whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Thanks, Jesus. That's really helpful. But even before getting into the essence of the story, we're starting to hit on its function, what what its purpose is. What Jesus is telling us is wanting to understand is critical to having ears that hear. People who truly desire the kingdom won't stay in ignorance. They'll keep seeking and knocking and finding. Yet even still, just because you don't like what Jesus has to say doesn't make it any less true. He's still bringing about the kingdom. He's just not bound to do it in all the ways that we require. What we can't say is that Jesus doesn't want people to hear. I mean, in verse 2, we we see that a large crowd is is gathering to hear. 
And on this occasion, Jesus gets into a boat, not to get away from the crowd. He's not getting into a boat to get away from the crowd, but as a way to make his message more accessible to them. He gets into a boat so that more can hear. Now, let's just pause for a moment, because we've covered a a lot of ground here. And, And can we all acknowledge that this is still a very strange way for Jesus to go about doing the things that he's trying to do? For him to be communicating what he's trying to communicate? Jesus is telling us how the kingdom of God is coming about. And he's saying that the entry point is through hearing and receiving. This is the way the kingdom of God advances, through hearing and receiving. And this is so unlike any kind of kingdom we've ever studied or read about. Fairy tales don't don't talk about kingdoms like that. World history doesn't talk about kingdoms like that. Pastor Tim Keller gives the example of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great inherited a strong kingdom with an experienced army. And so he, he uses this army for military conquest to advance his kingdom. Now that sounds brutal to our modern ears. I mean, that's, that's not how we would do things today, but, but that at least makes sense to us. That's at least one way. If you're trying to advance a kingdom, if you're trying to advance the places where, where rule, your rule is, that, that makes sense, right? Because coercion and might are logical explanations for kingdom advancement. And when the kingdom, the kingdom of Alexander came to your town, there's no question who was in it, right? There are two kinds of people who are in the, in, in the kingdom of Alexander. There are people who gave allegiance to Alexander, and there are people who are dead. That's it. World kingdoms will overwhelm you. They're distinct. But the kingdom of God is strange. It's subtle. And it's not immediately recognizable who's in and who's out. But it is substantial. It is indelible. Listen. The kingdom of God doesn't grow by force, but it does grow by submission. The kingdom of God doesn't grow by gaining human power, but it does grow by giving it up. The kingdom of God doesn't grow by whoever is the loudest, but it does grow by listening and hearing and receiving. So what I'm saying is, hearing is the way into the kingdom of God. Hearing is the way into the kingdom of God. Without it, you cannot enter. Listening and receiving is our action. It's our action. And this is not like anything we're used to, right? I mean, John the Baptist, he he struggled with this too. He had some of the same questions that, that we're asking. In Matthew 11, 2 and 3, it says, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? You see, John's admitting that Jesus isn't doing what he thought he would. His imprisonment is case in point. This doesn't look like winning, at least not how I define winning. How does the advancement of God's kingdom explain that? 
We could say in our own day, how does the advancement of God's kingdom explain our current reality right now? Why do Christians worldwide experience persecution? Why does so much evil persist? Why is there there's so much corruption and pain and sorrow? For some of you, maybe, maybe what it is is, is your faith feels like it's stagnant. You feel like you're not growing. You're struggling. You're constantly struggling. You find yourself asking more questions about God's word than before because you have a hard time reconciling what God is doing with what you see around you. And that might be because you really want the kingdom of God to function the way earthly kingdoms function. Again, this is not all that different from what John is saying. What, what John is saying is, Jesus, if you're really the king, then why do I hurt so much? Why is my life so hard? Why do I need to hide being a Christian in my workplace? Why do so many people seem to dislike me or discredit me for what I believe? Why is there no earthly advantage at all? But God's kingdom doesn't come about by human force or coercion. It's advanced organically by receiving the word through the power of the Spirit. And its shelf life far exceeds that of earthly kingdoms. So we've discussed function. We've been talking about the function. What's, what's Jesus, what are Jesus' parables intended to do? But now I want to turn our attention to the essence. What, what's the essence? What's the, what's the parable actually asking of me, of us? And when you look at the parable of the sower again, it, it seems fairly straightforward. I mean, a, a farmer scatters seed with what appears to be varying, varying success. I mean, in some soils, the seed takes no root at all. And in others, it, it has immediate and then stunted growth. And then others, it, it grows, but then it's, it's choked away. But in the final soil, it, it has varying degrees of fruitfulness. And, and the fruitfulness is abundant. And it would be easy for us to hear this story and conclude there's a certain kind of soil that's prime for growth. So that's the soil I, I must be. That's the soil I gotta be. In which case, the parable is all about figuring out what you must do to be fruitful. What must you do to be fruitful? But with Jesus' help, we start to see the actual meaning of the parable take shape. And we quickly discover that fruitfulness can't be the main thrust of the story. That can't be what it's about. I mean, in verse 19, Jesus says, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom, that's how he starts. That's what the, that's what the seed is about. It's, the seed is the message of the kingdom. And the different types of soils are the different responses to this message. The different kind of responses to hearing. And so Jesus' point is not that we ask, how can I be fruitful? Because in this case, every human heart has some kind of response to Jesus. But rather, the real heart question is, what kind of soil am I? What kind of soil am I in hearing Jesus' words? How do they, how do they strike me? And so he gives us a few examples. He says, the hard-hearted, the hard-hearted are those who come to listen to the message with no intention of hearing. These are the kind of people who treat the Christian faith more like an intellectual interest. They read their Bibles and maybe, maybe they listen to Christian podcasts. Maybe they go that far. But the message of the kingdom never goes below the surface. And so nothing meaningful ever takes root. 
They hear, but they never understand. I had a seminary professor who'd say, just, just as a rule of thumb, that loud singing churches tend to be mature churches because they, they believe what they're singing. They really believe it. And so they express it, they sing it, they cry out. They rejoice in it. Now I realize during COVID, some of us, we're, we're at home, we're singing. It's more embarrassing. That you don't have the, the band to drown you out. That's, that's not the point. But especially now, when the hard-hearted person, the hard-hearted person never feels moved to sing at all. The, the words, the truth, they don't move them. They're never drawn into to really worship. That's the hard-hearted. The, the shallow-hearted are those who, who start, but they don't finish. That's what Jesus says. They, they hear the word, and immediately they receive it with joy. But their newfound faith would never make sense in a world of trial and hardship. These are the people who want to live with the, the mountaintop spiritual experience. This seemed to happen at every Christian youth camp I went on, right? I mean, someone heard the gospel either for the first time or the hundredth time, and they, they committed, they, they, they answered the call, they, they went up, they prayed the prayer, they got excited about God, and they were invited to, to commit to Him, so they did it. But then they went back to daily life, and their faith made no sense, and so it made no difference. They were never really convicted of sin, and so they were never really amazed by grace. Verse 21 says they, they quickly fall away. And one commentator says the wording literally means to trip. It's not a steady decline. It's abrupt. It's a complete collapse. So the second is, is those who are, are shallow-hearted. And the third example we have here is, is the distracted-hearted. The distracted-hearted are those whose, whose allegiance is divided. These are people who, she, who seem to show real signs of faith, but never fully give their allegiance to God. Outwardly, they love Jesus and they worship Him. At least that's what it looks like, but, but they haven't fully committed themselves to Him. Notice in verse 22 that, that what chokes out faith is the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. In other words, these are not people who have given themselves over to the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't take a divided heart as meaning close enough. The worries of life and deceitfulness of wealth. Go back to what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. He says in, in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. That's, that's the distracted hearted. But in the final soil, we see that hearing is matched with understanding, meaning true hearing, listening, deepening faith. At some point, the word of God becomes real to you. It pricks and convicts. It stirs up. It awakens. You start saying, I can't believe I never saw that before. That's talking about me. I needed to hear that. Thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord for his faithfulness in opening my, my unhearing ears and my unseeing eyes. These are people who are beginning to come around to the truths 
of God. We're beginning to enter this kingdom. So in essence, the question is, what kind of soil are you? Who does Jesus need to be in order for you to believe him? What does Jesus need to do in order for you to trust him? The way you answer those questions might tell you what kind of soil you are. Now I want to end our time this morning talking about a prophecy fulfilled and a stunning hope revealed. What has been really rocking me this week while I've been studying this passage is is Jesus' quoting of Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. Right? Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 are the kind of verses you read and you, you just wish weren't there. In fact, many preachers seem to skip these verses altogether. They, they never really talk about them. And not just in Matthew, but even, even when preaching Isaiah 6, they, they seem to, to just pass over them. I mean, they, they, they make our modern ears cringe because we, we can't fathom a God who would be so brutally honest with us. I mean, if you're going to be constructive, at least sugarcoat it. Or try sandwiching it between two compliments. I mean, that, that works better for us. That's, that's how we, we, we receive it better that way. But it's not just the content of these verses that are hard to hear. It's the frequency in which they're referenced at all and how much we want to avoid them that shows we have our own hearing problem. Many of us just read through the book of Isaiah in our reading plan, or, or, or maybe, maybe you got through the whole book, maybe you're still working through it, maybe you never got there, that's okay. But if you had to guess which verses from Isaiah the New Testament authors quote most frequently, what would you guess? I mean, Isaiah is a, is a, is a pretty pivotal book of the Bible, and, and the New Testament authors refer to it often. So where do you think they go? What do you think they bring up? It's got to be the suffering servant, right? Or the voice of the one in the wilderness? I mean, those are, those are pretty frequent. Those are popular. We even like talking about those. Even the first half of Isaiah 6. I mean, in the first half of Isaiah 6, Isaiah encounters the glory of God. And and it shows us how fallen sinners should respond to him. He says, woe is me, I'm unclean. And God cleanses him and prepares him. He says, send me, I'll go. And then that's it. We stop. We stop there. But the second half of Isaiah 6 continues by showing us how sinners most often respond. And Jesus says it's no different in his day. I wonder if we think it's different today for us. Maybe those are just the ancients. We're we're past that. The authors of the New Testament quote Isaiah 6, 6, 9, and 10 at least six times. It's in all four Gospels. It's in Acts. It's referenced in Romans. And in fact, they they may be Isaiah's most frequently quoted verses in the entire New Testament. Those are the verses that God is quoting from Isaiah, even in our day. Hear these words again. He says, and this is from the, the quotation in Matthew 13. He says, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their ears. uh, I'm sorry. They might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. 
Now, some people are of the mindset that if we had lived during Jesus' day, then belief in God would be way more believable. I mean, life might still be hard, but, but belief would be easy. Receiving the things of God would be easy, as if the plans and work of God are not just as obvious to us today, as if you can't hear the words of God right now. Maybe you think, if I got to see Jesus perform miracles like they did, then I'd be sold. I'd be prof- I'd be, I would believe. That's what I want to see. Why, why can't God do that now? I mean, why, why can't God just, just pull back the curtains of the sky and show us the, the heavenly city and, and just reassure us that, that all of this means something? Why doesn't he just do that? That would make things a lot easier, wouldn't it? Wouldn't we all believe then? But that line of thinking just isn't true. Let me show you this. Back in Matthew 11, Jesus began to denounce people saying, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, hard hearts don't believe the truth, no matter how extravagant or how obvious. What God points out about the people of Isaiah's day is that they were ever hearing but never understanding. They were ever seeing but never perceiving. God was constantly putting the truth before their eyes and ears. The problem is not that God doesn't want people to hear the message of the kingdom. The problem is that people who look like they want to listen actually don't. Let's go one step further, because I I don't think it can be overstated. Anytime you encounter the Word of God, you never come away with a neutral reaction. You never come away unchanged. You may think you do. You may not even notice it. But you don't. You're, you're, You're being changed in one way or the other. What that means for us is that it's possible for God's message of the kingdom to have a revealing effect And it's also possible for for God's message to have a concealing effect. It's possible for the Spirit to be softening your heart to the things of God. And it's possible for you to come away more callous than you were before. And so there's both mercy and judgment in the words of God. Indifference is telling. Boredom is telling. Does the message of God make your heart sing? Or slumber? Rejoice or recoil? Some people are sermon proof. I mean, they just are. I mean, how else, how else would you explain it? How, how come a guy like Charles Spurgeon can stumble his way into a church on a, on a winter day and, and walk away believing? And, and people can flock to Jesus in droves and it elicits callousness. Have you opened yourself up to know the Lord? Did you come to worship this morning because you thought it might be another opportunity to encounter the living God? If you miss Him, it's not because He missed you. It's not because he He didn't make His Word available to you. What are your ears itching to hear? Scholar Leon Morris says, those to whom the prophetic words come, make sure that they are not disturbed by it. At the end of the quotation, 
the prophet comes to what God would do if the people responded. Their response is that they should turn. That's what they would do. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says that they would turn and he would heal them. That's what God's grace does. It heals. The honest words of Jesus reveal to us that broken sinners like ourselves are beyond human repair. And many people don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear that. If you come to Jesus asking, what do I need to do to fix myself? He would tell you, there's nothing you can do apart from me. Do you hear that? And so many are still searching for a second opinion. The parable Jesus tells here in Matthew uses seed, and, and we'll draw to a close here with, with this, this is high note. So we, we talked about, um, about this message. What about the hope? So there's seed that, that Jesus is talking about here in this story, and that, that's God's kingdom is taking root, that it's, it's growing, it's advancing. But the picture we get at the end of Isaiah 6 is, is of a stump, of a tree cut down. Neither picture looks all that impressive, right? But Isaiah 6 will surprise you. It actually, it has this hopeful ending, and this, this will be our ending. It's, it's in the lifeless stump that the holy seed is found. And that holy seed is Jesus, his message advancing. Meaning even in the places most hostile to God, the Lord can produce life. And even still, the final judgment isn't complete. God has, he still has time to work. He still has time to convict, to compel, to awaken to new life. Jesus himself leaves open the possibility that people who are presently hardened can be softened to the gospel of grace if they would humble themselves and receive his word. They can be softened if you humble yourself and you receive his word. You begin to search to knock, you'll find, and you'll profit, and you'll grow, and there'll be abundance. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we are so grateful for your word. We're so, so grateful for the way that you, God, you are advancing your kingdom even today, that you are still at work you're perking up ears and eyes that we might see these spiritual truths, these spiritual realities. God, may they be taking root in our own hearts. God, we, we want to be that fourth soil, but we know that we need, we need you to work in us. It's not something that we can accomplish ourselves, but something that you are working out in us. So God, may we strive in your strength because so many of us want to strive in our own. But may we, may we have ears to hear. May we receive this and may we believe, Lord. May we believe and may we trust you. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.